Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Turn with me to Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallow a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. O Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. Blessed are those whose strength is in you. They have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty. Listen to me, O God of Jacob. Look upon our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Let's pray for a moment. Father, we thank you for the sleep of the night. We thank you for the light of a new day. We give you praise for wonderful food to eat. We give you thanks for a fellowship that is Christian. We give you particular thanks for the privilege of hearing, reading, and hearing from your word. But Father, we thank you for the written word. You've given that to us and we can read it, but we want to hear the living word speak through it to us. So inspire our hearts today by the Holy Spirit with your truth, and we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. There's something always, to me, tantalizing about the Psalms because the Bible never tells us enough about them. If I had been running things, I would have had an introduction for every one of the Psalms and would have given you a background as to what it was that caused the psalmist to write it. I don't know, I suspect all of us at times as we read a psalm, we say, now I wonder what happened in the psalmist's life that made him uh, write this. There are a few psalms where we get some indications, like with Psalm 51. The indication, the story is that this is the psalm of David after his sin with Bathsheba when Nathan had rebuked him, and so we get a psalm of repentance. There are others that are tagged to various places in uh, the life of David. But most of the Psalms do not give us that kind of clue. So somebody said they are like pictures without frames. And so you don't know which, which wall, quite which, quite what wall to hang them on. But as the years have passed, I've come to love that because that means that uh, if it fits my wall, I can put the right kind of pic, I can put my frame on it to fit my circumstance. 
But it's interesting, this psalm indicates something about the psalmist. He's fallen in love with the house of God. Now, we live in a day when everybody's cynical about the church. Uh, how long since you've seen anybody who found himself very excited about getting into church? Now, maybe they are some. But where I go, most of the places I go, there's great cynicism about the church. And the place where I find it most of all is among the clergy. Uh, but I'm not sure. It may not have been a layman, but, but the thing is, he's talking about the house of God, and notice the way he describes it. How lovely is your dwelling place. It's a very tender word. It's a very precious word in the Hebrew, yididot. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, it faints for the courts of your house. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. He says, the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself. There she can take care of her young. And what a, what a nest is for a bird and for a bird's young, he says, a place near your altar. Now, some of the translations try to make it as if the sparrow and the swallow find a place of safety in the altars of God. But that really is not what is intended here. What is being said is the way a bird goes to its nest, the way a bird finds in a nest protection for its own uh, parent to child. He says, your altars are the place where I find that kind of security and your altars are the place where I find that kind of joy. He says, in fact, I've fallen in love with the house of God in such a way that he says, I find myself wanting to bless those who dwell in, the, in your house because they have the privilege of always praising you. Now, the interesting thing is this was written by a guy who didn't have a church on the corner. In fact, uh, the chances are the guy who wrote this lived a good ways from the temple because there was only one in all of Israel. And there's no indication that it came from David. So uh, it may be from somebody who uh, had to go quite a distance to get there. Now, you know enough about the Old Testament to know that you did not go to the temple every day. You went three times a year. So it was uh, like coming to him like in. It was not the kind of thing that you did weekly. It was the kind of thing that you did uh, triennially when you would go up for one of the great festivals. Now, why is it that he has fallen in love with the house of God? You know, there's some other passages in the Psalms that uh, indicate about the same thing. Let's take a moment and look at them just to get a feel for that. Look at, at Psalm 26, if you will, and verse 8 in Psalm 26. The, uh, the psalmist there is having a bit of a discussion with God about some of the problems he's facing. But when you get down to verse 8, he says, I love the house where you live, O Lord, the place where your glory dwells. You, uh, if you will turn to chapter 20, verse 27, you will find a similar thing. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Then you come down to verse 4. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. Now, can you feature a shepherd out on the hillside taking care of his sheep, saying, you know, I wish I didn't have to take care of these sheep. I'd just like to live in the Lord's house all the time. Now, you sense the, the moving in his heart, the stirring in his heart. There is an affection there. He said, I'd like to dwell in, in your house all the days of my life 
to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. If you look past 84 at 90, you will remember, you remember how 90 begins. Uh, the psalmist speaks and says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place through all generations. And so some way or other, he identifies him with the house of God, and it's sort of, I think there is an English word, metonymy, something like that, that you use a place for a person and a person for a place. Now there's some of that, Lord, uh, and then in beginning of 91, you get, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, He is my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. But it's very evident that the psalmist enjoyed the presence of God. And because he enjoyed the presence of God being in his presence, he had come to have a very idealistic notion about his house. And he loved it. Now, as I was living with that, you know, it came home to me. Why is it that he loved the house of God in such a way? I don't think, I, I think I have confidence that uh, the reason for it would be that sometime when he visited the temple, something unusual happened to him. When he visited the temple, some way or other, that veil between this world and the other one parted enough that he got a glimpse of God, and God drew very near to him, and the very living presence of God came and blessed him. And whenever God draws near to you, it doesn't matter where it is, when it is, or what the circumstances, there's a hallowing effect that takes place on the surroundings that go with it. I realized that in a way I'd never thought about before. Recently, we had the funeral of a 90, no, a 102-year-old lady who uh, had it in Hughes Auditorium. Weren't too many people there because weren't too many of her friends left. But uh, she had been the registrar at Asbury College for years upon years. Uh, and as I was preparing for that, I got to thinking about uh, uh, what an advantage in the past, the president of Asbury College has had. You see, you get a student who comes to Asbury College, and God comes and blesses that student, and blesses him richly, and he identifies Asbury College with the one who blessed him. And so a very common thing is you'll find students, their life ambition is to come back and work at Asbury. Now, if you've got a guy whose life ambition is to come back and work at Asbury, you've got tremendous leverage on him about salary. You can take advantage of people when you get them in that spot, when they dream about working for you. Well, now, uh, that's the way Asbury College survived across many of the years because there were people who were perfectly willing to give their lives for the privilege of being there. Why? Because the blessing of God had come and touched their life there and the place where it took place was holy for them. Now, uh, I suspect that there are most of us in this bunch today that we've got our places that are sacred to us. And the funny thing is, it doesn't have anything to do with the grandeur of the place or the worldly beauty of the place or anything else. Who would ever think of a camp campground normally in this country as beautiful? And I found Christ in the what is now the children's tabernacle. It was in the youth tabernacle at Indian Springs. And I remember the next time I had been away for about 20 years and went back, and when I got there, the first place I wanted to go 
was at Youth Tabernacle because it was there that Jesus Christ broke through to me and I came to know him. I walked in without him and when I walked out, he was living in my heart and it was transformed. I looked at how dirty and dusty that place was. It hadn't been cleaned up. And you know, I've been in St. Paul's in London. St. Paul's didn't impress me nearly as much. I didn't have any of the emotions in St. Paul's that I had walking into that little tabernacle that I hadn't been in for 20 years. Now, one of the wonderful things about our psyche to me is that when something happens to us, it's precious and time passes and you're separated from that. When you go back, you pick it up where you left it. Isn't it interesting? I had a teacher when I was uh, 13 and didn't see her again until I was in my 60s. And she had a profound influence on my life. It was interesting when I met her in Florida, she was retired and I was in my 60s and she, goodness knows what she was, I was 13 years old again, all over. It was funny, the emotions that swept through me, you know. But there's something about that, that God came and touched him and now he wants to, uh, he, he just likes to spend all his time in the tabernacle. Because when God comes, it makes such a difference. Isn't it interesting that you can spot Christian history by the times when God came to somebody? If you want to tell the story of Christian history, what do you do? You start with Abraham. And God came and said, I want you to leave here and go somewhere. When God appeared, that's the beginning of the whole thing. The next thing is when a bush burns and God appears to a guy taking care of sheep who's 80 years of age. Uh, the next step is when you get David and God comes to that shepherd boy and you get the king. You can keep going. God comes to a Paul. You take church history since. Uh, everybody, you cannot study church history without studying about the garden where Augustine was sitting when uh, a spirit spoke to him, a voice spoke to him, so much so that he thought he heard a literal voice. And the voice said, take up and read. And he picked up the book of Romans and read. And that influence has run across all of Western Christendom, both Protestantism and Catholicism. Un incredible influence. You and I are probably here because G John Wesley went to a place that uh, he didn't want to go. It was, not an, it was not a recognized church. It was one of these sort of sect places, you know, and he was a dignified priest of the Church of England. So he went to a disestablished worship center and got his heart, his heart was strangely warmed. Uh, you know, John Wesley Hughes was the founder of Asbury College. He was sitting in the train station in, Wilmer, in Lexington, Kentucky. He was an evangelist in the church, not a well-educated man at all. And as he's sitting there in that train station, a voice speaks to him and says, I want you to start a, a college, a holiness college. And he said, that's impossible because I'm not educated. I'm not qualified to do that. But the voice said, that's what I want. And the voice kept talking, kept talking, kept talking. And he said, this is, a, this is absurd. But he couldn't get it out of his mind. His wife was a very cultured, refined person and a marvelous woman. So he said, I'll tell her, and when I tell her, she'll laugh. And that'll break the spell of this thing, and I can forget it and go on my way. So he called her into the bedroom, and I think I'm right in this. He was sitting on the floor, and he told her to sit down. And she sat down and he told her about this strange experience he had and he knew it couldn't, couldn't be from God. And she looked back at him and said, I don't think there's any question. God has called you. That's what you've got to do. 
Asbury College is sitting there today because God came to a guy sitting in a train station. You don't know where he's going to come and you don't always know when he's going to come. In fact, you can't predict it. You can't program it. If we could get it where we could punch it, then we'd be in control. You can't control it. But whenever he comes, whenever he comes, there's that hallowing, sanctifying touch that the ordinary becomes extraordinary. The commonplace becomes sacred. And when it happens, something happens to you and you walk away a different person. And the probabilities are human history different. Isn't it interesting? And, you know, it may be, a, it may be just something you think is very private with you. But if it's in a mother's life, there's not going to be a child in the family that's not going to be influenced by it. If it's in a father's life, there's not going to be a child in the family. It, you just keep spreading it. When he touches a life, it has, it has significance way beyond the person whose life is being touched. Now, what does it do to a person? It changes a person's approach to life. And it uh, transforms the negatives in life. Let me, uh, let me illustrate it out of the text. Look at verse 6. Well, first verse 5. We come to the second unit. Blessed are those whose strength is in you, who have set their hearts on pilgrimage. As they pass through the valley of Baca, they make it a place of springs. The autumn rains also cover it with pools. They go from strength to strength till each appears before God in Zion. Now, uh, uh, he says, these people who find their strength in God, God has come to them and they find their strength in him. When they go through the valley of Baca, they turn it into a place of springs and pools. The autumn rains come and refresh it. Now, all of the scholars have tried to figure out what the valley of Baca is. And nobody can find the Valley of Baca. Uh, and uh, that may be good, because uh, if you can't name it, maybe it's your valley, the one you're in, you see. But it comes from, probably, from a Hebrew word, which is B-K-H, Baca, uh, which means to weep. Now, the problem is, and everybody is, a lot of scholars have tried to interpret it that way, commentators, but the problem is, it's not B-K-H in Hebrew, but it's B-K-Aleph. And there is no Hebrew word to match that. So they say, maybe there was a scribal error and it should have been an H. But if it is an H, it means a place of weeping. I think the, I think the rest of the verse indicates that it's a negative place. As they pass through, and when you say pass through, you've got a certain emotional connotation, haven't you? <laughs> It's something you got to endure. you got to get through it. So whatever it is, it's a place for weeping. The place of weeping, that valley, when your circumstances have turned and you'd like to crawl up in a corner and just uh, have a pity party and, uh, and, and weep your heart out. The person who has met God now finds that there is a strength that can make the valley of weeping may well be a place of complete desert and dryness. Turn it into a place of springs. Turn it into a place where autumn rains come and cover it with pools, and a person can go from strength to strength. Now, uh, it's interesting that God never tells us when we become believers that we won't have problems or battles. 
But the promise is that he can take the negative places and turn them into profitable places. And the place that you say, would to God I'd never had to get into that, he will get you if you walk with him. The places that the ones around you say, what a pity that he ever had to pass through that. Down in your spirit, you'll say, oh my, you wouldn't have, you, you wouldn't have kept me from that, would you? I learned something there that I never could have learned anywhere else. I uh, I could use some personal illustration. I remember when uh, they made me, they asked us to go to the college. Uh, the college had gone through some rough days, and uh, uh, when I had, two weeks before I was to move into the office, I got a communication from the Southern Association that scared the willies out of me. Uh, I remember it scared me enough that I went to see the interim president who had been in my place, and he said, well, I know the chairman of that committee. I wouldn't worry. The only problem was that that committee was already dissolved, and that guy didn't have anything to do with the outcome. I went to uh, the chairman of the board, and he said, I've got a friend in, a, in Atlanta, and uh, I don't think we'll have to worry about it. Well, I thought that was good. But I went to see the chairman, of, uh, not, not the chairman of the board, I went to see a friend of mine who, whose influence I, uh, whose judgment I trusted. Then I went, I went to flew to Estes Park, flew to Denver, Colorado, got a car and went up to Estes Park to see the chairman of the board. And he didn't, he, I was not my, he was not, I was not his choice for the presidency. And that was my first visit with him. And uh, so uh, he took me to breakfast, and I pulled out the document from the Southern Association, and I was reading it to him, and he changed the subject on me in the middle of the sentence. And I knew he was not he was not paying any attention to me, so I closed the book and got in the car and drove up over the Great Divide, and first time I'd ever been there, and came home, and then the first of September, that was the middle of August, first of September, I became president. And in the middle of October, I got a communication from the Southern Association saying, on the 1st of December, please show up in Atlanta, Georgia, to show reason why Asbury College should not be put on academic probation. And scared the willies out of me. So I asked the chairman of the board to call an emergency meeting of the uh, executive committee. I was a green, green, green president brand new. So we met the executive committee in a secret session in uh, Lexington. There were two things I felt we had to have in order to, to uh, get clear with the Southern Association. And I uh, sat with that executive committee I'd never met with and said, uh, here's what I think we need. I made my first proposal and they voted me down unanimously. So I sat there and I made my second proposal, and uh, the shrewdest guy on the executive committee, he made a speech against it, and I knew I was done. So I thought I'll make one more. I'll make one more effort. So I made a speech. So he made another speech and wiped me out. So I'd made another desperate attempt, and he made another speech and wiped me out. So I pushed back from the table and looked at the executive committee and said, I'm not responsible for Asbury College. I work for you. The only business I have is to let you know where I think we are. 
But when this document says, if Asbury College is to be considered a creditable educational institution, I said, I think what they're saying to me is if Asbury College is to continue as an accredited institution. And uh, the guy who had cut me to shreds or undercut me for three times turned and looked at the chairman and said, Mr. Chairman, I, I move we give him what he wants. So I got at least half of what I thought we had to have. But the 1st of December, I had to go to Atlanta. So on the 30th of November, I went. It was a Sunday. It was a rainy, miserable day. We checked into a hotel, and motel, a hotel downtown. And I, uh, there were three of us. I brought my dean and the chairman of the committee that had uh, on reaccreditation from our faculty. And I said, I, want, I need a little time alone. So I walked out into the city of Atlanta to, to walk a little that night. Had my raincoat on. And I was glad it was raining. There are times, you know, when you'd like for the atmosphere to match your spirit. Your and so I walked along in the rain and uh, passed the First Methodist Church downtown. Never been in there. And I noticed they were having service. So I went in. There was a handful of people in there. And I sat in the back. And they were singing gospel chorus songs. Uh, that brought some balm for my soul. Well, uh, the next morning, I remember that uh, I had put together, I had gotten a, a motel room in Lexington and gotten the best guy I could find to help me. And we'd put together a document promising me everything, including the kitchen sink. And so at 8 o'clock, I walked into that thing scared out of my wits. I'd never been in those circles before. And uh, uh, the meeting got started, and they made some presentation, and they then they turned for me to speak. And I said, well, you have to understand, I'm a brand-new college president. I've been there three months. And uh, one of the sharpest persons on the committee, a lady, picked up the document we had sent and held it up and said, and evidently you've been very, very busy. And I thought, for heaven's sakes, I may have a friend. And uh, we got we got uh, some conditions worked out and got through it. And that was the way I began. Uh, that was the last way in the world I wanted to begin. And it was the best way in the world I ever could have begun. Because it scared the living willies out of me. And I didn't know anything about undergraduate education. But let me tell you, I started working to find out. And uh, uh, we did some scouring. And I'm sure that the, that the most of the academic ad advances that we made were based on the desperation that was in me in those first six or eight months. Now, he can take the, the weeping places and he can transform them. But you see, the thing about it is, what's the key to it? Now, here's the key to it. It's beautiful to me in this psalm. You notice he says, he comes and he hallows things. But look at verse 5, which is a transition verse between the first four about the beauty and sacredness of the house of God and the way God can take the negatives and transform them into positives. The verse that's in between is, blessed are those whose strength is in you, O God. Blessed is the person who's found where the real strength is. It's not in the flesh. It is in God. 
is not in the flesh, it is in the spirit. So what you've got here is a psalm that is built on, you could use the psalm, you could use as a text for this psalm, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord. You could take Romans 6, Romans 7, all of Paul's treatment of flesh against spirit. You could take Galatians 5. You could use it as the, as the biblical text for this. Because what happens is when God comes to you, you find that there is a strength that is available that is different from the human. And the person who can learn to live in the power of God and in the strength of God instead of in his own strength, live in his wisdom instead of our own brightness and cleverness, that person is going to find that there is something within his life that can take the negatives and turn them around and turn them into positives. I sat the other day with a man whom I, for whom I have great respect, a man, if I were to name him, uh, you would, many of you would know him, and he, uh, we've shared some things together, and he told me about an experience in his life where he was went through tremendous humiliation, and uh, public humiliation, none of which was deserved. Absolutely none of which was deserved. Now, it's bad enough to be humiliated when you deserve it. <laughs> but to be humiliated publicly when you don't deserve it, then what are you going to do? He said, I had a chance to strike back. And he said, the inner spirit said, that isn't going to help anything. So he said, I said, Lord, it's your business to defend me, not my business to defend me. And so he said, in the grace of God, he kept me in the spirit and kept me out of the flesh in that thing. And you know, out of all the people that I've known personally in the last 10 years, I think he's contributed more to my life. And there's not a question in my, in my mind. There is, a, there is a nobility in him. There's a stability in him. There's a grace in him. There's a wisdom in him. There's, there's no flash. There's just the solidity of eternity there. Do you know what I mean? Do you know what I mean? Because uh, he learned to walk in the strength and in the power of God, not in the power of the flesh. Uh, now, that is available to us. And when God comes to us, we find that that kind of thing is possible. So he says, hear my prayer, O Lord God Almighty, listen to me. O God of Jacob, look upon uh, our shield, O God. Look with favor on your anointed one. Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Isn't that a great line? And you know that's true. Now, how can one day be better than a thousand? Well, the thing about it is, whenever he comes, there's something timeless about it, isn't it? Could I hold you there and tease you for a moment on that? Whenever he comes, it's almost as if the clock stops, isn't it? There's something timeless about it. I remember Peter Berger was talking about, if there is a world out there that you can't see, touch, or measure, there ought to be a few signals that come through occasionally. And one that he proposed was a kid who comes in at supper time late, and when his mother scolds him, he uh, looks up in shock, surprised that she'd be that way, that she'd be that ignorant. And he looks at his mother and says, well, I was playing. 
everybody knows that when you play, time stops. Clocks don't have anything to do with that. They can't touch that world. They can't measure it when joy is there and when you play. Now, there's something like that about when he comes. You get a taste of eternity. It's just something beyond the usual transit. So he says, I don't know, have one day like that, than a thousand. And what's a thousand? It's pretty close to three years, isn't it? I'd rather have one of those moments than a thousand of the other. Now he says, uh, in fact, I'd be willing to be a doorkeeper. I'd be willing to be a, a houseboy. I'd be willing to be a, a, a boot black. I'd be willing to do anything if I could just stay around the house of God where God dwells. And he said, I'd much rather be at the lowest level in the hierarchy in the house of God than be at the highest level in the hierarchy of the world. Because he said, the Lord God is a sun and a shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. O Lord Almighty, blessed is a man who trusts in him. The key to the whole thing is, first of all, to have him come to you. To where he's broken through into your life. And you've come to know him. You've met him. And the second thing is to come to learn that that grace that comes when he comes, that you can live in it and you can live in it perpetually and you don't have to live in your own strength. You know, uh, as I look at uh, the church across the centuries, it seems to me that the thing that we have learned less well than anything else is his ways as opposed to our ways and the spirit as opposed to the flesh. I learned something not too long ago about uh, a man whom I heard preach in earlier years who was a great orator, very impressive in the pulpit. He himself was physically well-built and was impressive in physical demeanor and, and, and person, but he, was, uh, he had an incredible knack with words, an incredible knack with words and could run them together in very picturesque, flowery language. And you know, when he got started on a roll, you'd sit spellbound. And when I'd hear him, I'd think, Kinlaw, you're stupid. You stumble, you're a bumbler when it comes to the use of the English language. I found out something the other day. I found out that for a good bit of his ministry, he, he built two churches, uh, Three churches, I think it was. But uh, for a long period in his life, he kept a mistress who had a family. So he had a wife and a mistress, and he had two families, and he supported them, and nobody knew it. And then I found out about his oratory. There was a guy who lived about 80 years ago who was a genius published some books, and then they went out of print. And this guy found those books and memorized that guy's sermons. And about the time his life collapsed, he found out that they were republishing the sermons of the guy that nobody knew had existed. And he was desperately making every move he could make to find a way to keep those books off, off, 
off the mark. Now, you know, when I heard that, I remembered a story from John Church, which some of you have heard me tell, which uh, I've never forgotten. Church told me about the first time he ever came to Asbury. It was for a commencement. He said, I was young. I was flattered. He said, I worked. I wanted to do my best. He said, I had a bit of a flair for oratory in those days. So he said, man, I polished it. And he said, I was ready. He said, the day came and I was introduced. Hughes Auditorium was packed. It was a high moment, great spirit there. And when I started, the anointing was on me. He said, I started into my peroration. I'd never heard the word peroration before. But he said, I started into my oratorical climb. And he said, suddenly it dawned on me. I had that crowd in the palm of my hand. And I could do anything I wanted to with it. I can manipulate it just like a uh, uh, puppeteer does with his puppets. And he said, Kinlaw, it struck stark terror into my soul. He said, I started winding down as fast as I could wind down. He said, I did try to do it in such a way that nobody would know that I was quitting early. He said, I went to my room and got down on my knees and said, God, if you'll forgive me, I will never, ever, 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 ever. I'll never forget that stack of evers. I will never, ever, ever, ever be guilty of that again. Now, you know, it's one thing to let your flesh be dominated by the spirit. The flesh is not evil in itself. It's only evil when it's under my control. <laughs> and why do I get it under my control? For some reason, for personal pride and personal ego. Personal reason. But when it's submitted to him, and there's nobody who ever heard John Church who didn't know that he was an incredible preacher. But the greatness was in the authenticity with which he preached. It was interesting, that preacher who memorized another preacher's sermons said, I, I, I organized, found, I founded and established two evangelical churches while I was backslidden. Isn't that interesting? This guy says, blessed are those whose strength is in you. Because a little where he is is infinitely better than a great deal that doesn't have his blessing and his approval on it. So the psalmist has come to the place where he's found his strength is in God. God has met him and he said, that touch, I want to live with that. I want to live in your, in your grace and in your strength. Now he says, what's the secret? At the close. So the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is. My translation says blameless. Uh, what other translations have you got there? What? Uprightly. What else? It's interesting. This is the word used of Noah when it says that Noah walked with God, that he was upright, and that he uh, was, the Hebrew word is tamim. King James translates it perfect. 
Now, uh, let me make a comment, which won't mean anything to some of you, but some of you, uh, you will. You know, John Wesley talked about Christian perfection. And he did it because of passages like this. It is the same word which is used in Genesis 17, where God says to Abraham, I want you to walk before me and be, and the King James says, perfect. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Now the NIV says blameless. Hebrew word is tamim. It's interesting, apparently in the 16th century, or in the 17th century, when the King James was written, perfect did not have the religious connotations of horror that it has now. And so Wesley, living on top of that, used the term, said, yeah, you can be perfect. And now if you want anybody, you want to be scoffed out of town in evangelical circles, you talk about that. But Wesley said, why did he do it? He knew that you and I can't be perfect the way the angels are, and perfect in a mechanical sense of any of theirs. But what is it? The basic idea in the thing is soundness and completeness that something has been finished <laughs> now what is it that's finished it's when I decide I don't want to live my way I want to live his way holy <laughs> now that much can be finished in a person's life and completed that a person can say Lord I'd like you to deliver me from me uh, there's a camp meeting, campground over here in uh, High Point. And a fellow went to visit it between camp meetings. And uh, they'd rented it out to a motorcycle gang. <laughs> and he was horrified <laughs> when he saw all that leather and those Harley Davidsons <laughs> in control. And he walked into the cafeteria, and there on the wall was a big sign they'd put up, Father, I have a problem. It's me. <laughs> There was a second line that said, Son, I have an answer. It's me. <laughs> now, uh, do, I have to live in, do I have to live with that problem me all the time or did something happen in the cross that can deliver me from me? That's all sin is, is me. And so when he, when he talks about this, the psalmist comes to an end and says, No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is with integrity. Now, you know what integrity means? What is an integer? It's a number. It's one. When a person becomes, the will of, with the will of God, there's a oneness between his will. He's chosen God's will, and he's let God uh, commit that will to him. Now, no good thing does God withhold from those whose walk is with integrity, with uprightness. That's what we heard about last night. That's what Paul was talking about. A pure heart. Good, a good conscience, that's it. Now, why does God not withhold anything from a person whose walk is blameless? Because he won't misuse it. Uh, he can trust the person. If my heart motive is, is, is split, as an expression in Hebrew of a guy who has a heart and a heart, lave the lave, a heart and a heart, he's got two hearts. And the Old Testament says, put these together, Lord where I've got one heart within me. Now, uh, if I've got a heart and a heart and God gives me something, that deviosity within me will use it first. 
personal ends instead of that. But that purity of heart is what he's talking about. And so God, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk his blameless. Now what's the capstone on it? He, he quits with us and through. O Lord Almighty, blessed is the man who trusts in you. Now what does that have to do with it? The only reason I don't give him all there is in me is because I don't trust him. <laughs> if I trust him, I'll take my hands off and let him have the whole shooting match. And then I'll say, Lord, you run it. <laughs> Instead of keeping my finger on it. So that the capstone of the whole thing is just do we trust him? And he's trustworthy. It's safe to trust him. It's not only safe to trust him, it's wonderful. No good thing is without from the person who's taken his hands off and trusts him. Now, it's interesting. When you get to that place, everywhere you find him is a sacred place. I even like this poultry yard. Now, you think about it one way, but I think about it another, because every time, the most of the times I've been to Hemlock Inn, it's been processions out here like this. The sanctuary, one of the shrines in my life. And that's the way with his auditorium. We had a, I don't know what the, it was at Asbury, but we had a, a commemoration or something, maybe maybe the centennial. And I remember closing a service and giving an invitation for people who wanted to pray. And I watched an old guy come down the aisle on the left. And I watched him walk across the altar, <laughs> walk down in front of the altar and walk down. And he stood hesitant for a moment. And then he knelt, and I knew exactly all that was going on in his mind. Because when he had been a student, he'd walked down that aisle and knelt at that altar, and he wanted to kneel at exactly the same spot where God had come to him the first time, because it was a sacred place. Now, uh, uh, how beautiful are your tabernacles, your dwelling places, O Lord? Okay, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the fact you come to us. You care. You love us. You want to break through to us. Lord, don't let us put up any defenses or any walls, but let us know that it's safe to let them drop and let you come. Thank you for your hallowing touch whenever you come. And thank you for the fact that good things always begin. Never stops with the coming. It's just the beginning. And let our hours together today and tomorrow be that way. And we'll give you praise in Christ's name. Amen.